Welcome back to the Innovation Engine podcast. On this double episode of the podcast, I'm your host, Julia Slattery, and we're coming to you from the Ditch South Conference in Charleston, South Carolina. Ditch South is the South's largest annual tech conference. It brings together more than 2,500 people who are building digital products that are changing the way people live, work, and play. I'll be talking with a number of those people on this second episode of our Ditch South double feature, which we're breaking up into two because of the sheer volume of content that we recorded. Susan Engelson is the Senior Director of Product at Comscore. In her role, Susan spends her days working on the next generation of media measurement, including measurement of over-the-top streaming and smart speakers. This includes managing Comscore's connected home and OTT intelligence products, as well as custom analyses and data feeds based on Comscore's proprietary total home panel, which measures all devices in the home. All right, so we're here at Dig South with Susan Engelson of Comscore. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. Uh, At Comscore, which is a market research firm, uh, I work in our product management department. Mm -hmm. And what uh, I've spent most of my time recently working on is measurement of over-the-top streaming. So that is when folks either use their smart TV directly or hook up a streaming box or stick or a game console and uh, consume content uh, over the internet. And that is uh, a space that's pretty exciting. It's growing pretty fast. So that's what I do. Absolutely. And you were recently on a panel here at Dig South. Can you tell us a little bit about what you talked about on the panel? Sure. So I was on a panel that was moderated by UMI, by Rhythm One. And the panel was about uh, advanced TV, which is uh, sort of an all-encompassing term for not just kind of traditional TV, uh, but also uh, some of the Uh, programmatic that's available in TV now. Uh, Addressable uh, is usually the the term that's used in television, uh, as well as uh, connected TV uh, or over the top. And so there were a couple folks on the panel with me, uh, one from an ad agency and one from uh, a smart TV manufacturer. So uh, we talked about a variety of things, uh, particularly as it relates to uh, advertising and how that uh, is kind of changing changing and evolving, and the measurement uh, is changing and evolving. That's really cool. So how do you see the future of the digital space when it comes to smart TVs evolving? So I think it's hard to think about smart TVs without kind of some of the other devices like streaming boxes and sticks and game consoles. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've been tracking this for a while and certainly the penetration of uh, smart TVs uh, has gone up, but we actually see a slightly higher percentage uh, of households are actually using a streaming box or stick um, to actually do the streaming. And so in some cases that may be because they have a TV that's not already smart or just because Um, These devices have gotten pretty inexpensive, and some of them are very easy to use. They make great holiday gifts, Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, people end up having them, uh, and so they're using those instead. And how difficult is that tracking that data? So it's definitely a little bit more difficult uh, measuring that than uh, just uh, traditional internet. Uh, Anytime you get into a new technology, there are challenges. Uh, One of the challenges is um, there's a lot of different operating systems. So, you know, you have Amazon, Google, Roku, all these different companies. And so 
Uh, when you're a company that is building an app, just building an app to get on all those platforms can be very challenging. Mm -hmm. And then having to also instrument for measurement adds an additional layer of complexity. And more often than not, you know, most of the app creators are very focused on getting things out the door and measurement kind of comes later. That said, uh, what we have at Comscore these days is something that's called our total home panel. And that's a panel of about 8,000 households in the U.S. Uh, where they opt in and we provide them with a small device that plugs into their router and that allows us to measure all of the internet de connected devices that are in the home. Oh. So we know if they have uh, a smart TV that uh, is being used for streaming, a game console, uh, a smart speaker. Smart speakers are huge. Six months ago, it was maybe 10% of households had one. Now it's 20%. Uh, so we've seen a huge rise in that. So something like the Total Home Panel really allows us um, some good visibility into what folks are doing in streaming. And so in our OTT intelligence service, we're currently measuring about 70 streaming services. And that's across all the, the different operating systems and platforms that you could be streaming on. Wow, very nice. And you spoke about advertising earlier. Tell us a little bit about how the advertising space has changed. So uh, advertising is a very dynamic space. I think one of um, my theories is that traditional ads are going to wane. I don't think they're going to go away, but we're going to see fewer of them. Uh, and part of that is because when we look at OTT streaming, it's about 50-50 traditional ad-supported versus uh, not ad-supported. So not ad-supported would be like your Netflix, you pay, you never see an ad. Mm -hmm. And so... That doesn't mean there aren't opportunities for advertisers. It's just uh, more in the sort of product placement or like brand integration, branded entertainment. There's a few different terms for it. Uh, but I think that is going to be a big focus. Uh, and certainly there are techniques uh, to measure that uh, now that have been developed. And Comscore you know, certainly does that. So uh, I think we're, we're going to see a lot of that. Um, you know, another big buzzword is uh, addressable. So mm -hmm. uh, I watch a lot of on-demand TV, and one of my complaints is that for the first either three or seven days, uh, you get the content and commercials exactly as they air. Original air date might have been on Sunday, and there may have been a promo for a show running on that same network on Monday. Mm -hmm. You might access the on-demand content on Tuesday, and you still see an ad that says, you know, exciting, tomorrow we're going to have, you know, this new episode of this show. And, well, it's not. It was actually yesterday. I've seen and, that a lot. Yes. And so, you know, I think we're going to move fairly quickly away from that. There's a lot of, you know, pretty complicated back-end technology things that the engineers need to solve. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the great things for advertisers is... Uh, typically, there is some targeting that's available. So instead of uh, just advertising in a particular content, you're really advertising more almost in a one-to-one -one way. You're advertising to an audience uh, as opposed to in content. Very nice. And so do you see this as a, an alternative to cord cutting completely? Is that kind of how you're billing it? So cord cutting is an interesting phenomenon. When we look at households that do OTT streaming, about two-thirds of them have traditional 
uh, pay television, cable, fiber, satellite. Uh, and then the other third are cordless. And of that, it's roughly half and half cord cutters versus cord nevers. The cord never oh. population is, is growing quite a bit uh, because, you know, as you know, the millennials are graduating from college, you know, they get their first apartment and, you know, someone says, oh, you know, you should pay $125 for cable. And they say, that's crazy. So... You know, there's some newer options. Uh, sometimes they're known as virtual MVPDs, the uh, multi-channel video programming distributors. So, yes, that's a complicated name for, <laughs> you may have watched the Super Bowl and seen an ad for YouTube TV. Mm-hmm. So you can oh. get you can get your traditional TV kind of live through the internet. There's mm-hmm. a variety of services. So Sling from Dish Network, which is the largest right now. Uh, there's also DirecTV Now, PlayStation View. Hulu Live, mm-hmm. uh, YouTube TV, uh, and then some smaller services like Layer 3, FUBU, Philo. Uh, and those services have been growing very quickly. Uh, Sling Now is up to well over 2 million subscribers. DirecTV Now has over a million subscribers. Uh, and Dish Network that owns Sling actually just started reporting um, specific breakouts of Sling uh, versus traditional subscribers. And it's it's a significant portion of their business. So while some people might be cutting the cord, we're not necessarily, or never having one, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not doing any pay TV because that is now an option without a cord. The other thing that we're seeing is the resurgence of the antenna. A lot of people oh. now have gone back to the digital antenna. I've seen that a lot, actually. Some of my my sister's a few years younger than me, and some of her friends are using that. It's it's big with the college students, I think. Exactly, because it it allows you to get stuff for free. And if there's one thing college students like, it's free. It's free stuff. Absolutely, (laughs) yeah. So this is super interesting. As far as what you're working on into the future, can you share a little bit of maybe a special project you're working on that you can discuss with us? So into the future, uh, wow, that's a tricky one. Into the future. I I stay very busy staying on top of all of the new uh, over-the-top services uh, that have come out. So a year ago, we were measuring several dozen. Now we're measuring like 70 or more. And keep in mind, some of those are, you know, things that you might traditionally think of as being kind of small, like, uh, you know, services that specialize in maybe like gaming. Uh, so people like watching other people play video games. Mm-hmm. Something that Twitch. Yes. Yeah. Things like Twitch. Um, things that wouldn't traditionally be on network TV. So of those 70 services, there's you know a good amount that aren't even necessarily traditional TV players. So I think we're going to start seeing just a lot more activity from both traditional and non-traditional players. So I do a lot of kind of keeping track of, you know, which of those are are really starting to break through. Um, We're seeing a lot of partnerships between kind of telecom and streaming. So there's a lot of interest in that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the, one of the, the big things going forward is just, continuing to develop technology so that we can measure uh, everything that's going in, going on in a household, uh, not just internet uh, connected, which is what we're measuring in total home, but TV as well. That's a, a big focus at Comscore. Yeah, I would think with, you know, every, every day there's something new and to be able to measure it and, um, and gathering all that data, right? It just keeps building, building the, the, the challenge for you would be enormous. <laughs> <laughs> so where can people find you online? 
Uh, Comscore can be found at comscore.com. Uh, you can, you know, find it on uh, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn as well. And certainly I'm personally available uh, on LinkedIn. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining thank us. You, this Susan. has been great. Thanks. Of course. Jeff Perkins is the Chief Marketing Officer at Park Mobile, a three-pillar client that was recently acquired by BMW. Park Mobile powers parking via mobile and web apps in more than 3,000 locations across the country. Jeff stopped by after his talk at the conference to give us a little bit more insight into the future of mobile parking payments. All right, so we're here at Dig South with Jeff Perkins of Park Mobile. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks Can for you, having me. Of course. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. I'm the CMO of Park Mobile. Right. Uh, Park Mobile is the largest app around the country that basically lets people pay for parking right from their mobile phone. So the old way of parking where you would you know, have to have spare change and go to a meter, mm -hmm. that's quickly becoming obsolete. Um, right. You know, Like a lot of things in people's lives, they want less friction. They want things to be easier, simpler. Uh, and we really give them that option. So instead of having to go to a kiosk or put change in a machine or put your credit card in a machine, you park your car, take your phone out, start a parking session, and then you're off. And then while you're you know, at lunch or while you're shopping, whatever you're doing, you realize your parking session is almost coming to an end. You could actually just extend time remotely. So mm -hmm. you don't have to run back, feed the meter. Uh, you just extend right. time right from your mobile phone. So it's a really nice service. We have uh, almost 9 million people have downloaded the app since wow. we started. Wow. Uh, we have we do about two hundred fifty thousand transactions every day for parking. Wow! So wow. it's really um, you know we're, we've been around ten years and we've really mm -hmm. grown a lot. So very exciting company to be at. Yeah. Absolutely. I definitely use it at least once a week. I love the app. I love the interface. And I love it. My sister will sometimes drive my family cars. My parents can be states away and pay for her parking wherever she is. <laughs> nice. She's just like, here's the zone number plug it into your app, <laughs> let me park the car. Right, it's it makes great. it easy. I mean, that's that's the idea. Um, and in the future, uh, you may not even need the app. Your car, you no. know, we have a, uh, BMW is actually our owner. Okay. And we're working with them on kind of the next generation of parking, mm -hmm. where right in the dashboard of the car, you just pull into a garage and it starts, you know, the parking session. So that's really uh, an exciting future where, you know, people aren't going to have to worry about, you know, parking payments anymore. Mm -hmm. um, we also have technology now that's really cool that lets you see where parking is available in yes. the area you're in. So if you're driving into a you know a congested part of town where you're not sure where parking is going to be, you look on a map and it shows you, you know, green, yellow, and red. Uh, red means there's no spots available. Yellow means there's some. Green means there's a lot of spots available. So rather than just driving around the block 10 times, mm -hmm. uh, you drive right to the areas that are green mm -hmm. and chances are there's going to be a spot available for you. So it just yeah. saves you time and actually will reduce your carbon footprint significantly. Because people, yeah. you know, people spend, I think, annually about 17 hours driving around looking for parking. Ugh. So if you could cut wow. that in half or That's just crazy. eliminate that altogether, yeah. um, you think about the impact you can have on the environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no kidding. Well, as a road warrior... I definitely use the Park Mobile app on a daily basis. I'm slowly putting all of your employees through college, your, your kids through college. So. <laughs> I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for your business. One, one, one transaction at a time. Mm -hmm. So, so y you just gave a session on building your personal brand and you're um, talking a little bit about your kind of, you know, uh, rise to the uh, CMO role. Tell us now a little bit about, um, you know, your own personal take on CMOing. You know, what's your own, you know, personal take? How do you bring uh, your personality into how you do product marketing? Right. So, 
I don't have a, a set approach to being a CMO. I, I think as a CMO, um, my job is really to solve problems. Mm-hmm. And no two companies have the same problems. Some companies you go into, they have a brand problem. Some companies have a lead generation problem. Some companies have a product problem. And I think my job in being an effective CMO is to try to solve those problems. All right. And, and so, you know, that's really the approach I take. It's like, where can I apply my time and my focus to be most effective for the business uh, using kind of the full array of, of marketing tools at my disposal. So, so that's kind of the approach I always take when I'm going into a business. Now, I work in um, smaller companies, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I came out of the enterprise earlier in my career, but I've made kind of a shift into more of a startup or a mid-sized company world. You know, Park Mobile is a, we're about a hundred person company. So we're not huge. Hopefully, eventually we'll get to be huge. Uh, We'll get to be a big enterprise, but for now we're the size we are. So when you're at a company that size, uh, you really have to focus um, the limited resources you have on driving the business. So I probably spend most of my time thinking about where our users are uh, how do we reach them? How do we influence them? How do we get them using the app more if they're a current user? For people who are not using the app, how do we educate them on what the app is, what the value is, to get them to use it, to get them to download it? Mm-hmm. So that's really um, probably where I'm spending most of my mind share now as a CMO of Park Mobile. Uh, and that'll evolve as the company matures. Right. As the company evolves, I may um, bring people in who will do certain tasks that we're not doing today. Um, so I, I kind of take everything in a very incremental approach. I say, all right, let's Let's take the next six months and accomplish these five things. Right. Then the next six months, we accomplish another five things. And so you're always trying to kind of put runs on the board. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's basically my approach to running marketing. Great. Yeah. So Jesse brought up that you were recently presenting. Can you give us a little background on what you were speaking on? Yeah. So the presentation I did at this conference, uh, the title was How to Be a CMO, My Journey from Middle Management to the Mm -hmm. C-Suite. I get asked a lot about, you know, my career journey and and how I became a CMO. And so I thought, you know, if people are asking me this, that's probably a good indicator that it's a good topic for a conference like this. Yeah. so my story is is kind of unconventional where, you know, I was a, a middle manager for, a, you know, a good chunk of my career. I spent about five years um, in a what was a senior marketing manager role, mm-hmm. and I felt very stuck. And I felt like I'm doing all the things that should get me promoted. I'm doing all the things that should get me into a, a more of a senior leadership role, get me into a VP role, but it just wasn't happening. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so I said, all right, I'm, I'm going to leave... I'm going to leave my job. I'm going to go find a senior marketing role outside the company. And what I found is that uh, as a, a senior marketing manager with a lot of experience, I really didn't have a lot of people who wanted to hire me at that mm-hmm. time. Uh, people who had VP of marketing jobs said, hey, you're a senior marketing manager. I'm not going to hire you for a VP of marketing. Uh, people who had marketing manager jobs said, hey, you're, you're a marketing manager for five years and you're, you're paid a lot more than most of the marketing managers, so we're not, you're not going to work out here either. Mm-hmm. So I was in this position where I couldn't get a VP job because I was a senior marketing manager. I couldn't get a marketing manager job because I was, uh, my compensation yeah. was too high. And, and I said, I am just screwed. Um, yeah. I, I'm in a really challenging situation. And so what I talked about in the presentation is that I, I watched uh, the show Seinfeld, and there's an episode of Seinfeld where George decides he's going to do the opposite of everything. Like, he's, well, okay. his life is, is going terribly. Um, he's having no luck. And he says, all right, I'm just going to do the opposite. And, and that's what I said. I said, you know, 
what I'm doing now is not working. Mm-hmm. I, I need to do something different. I need to change. And so I said, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on my personal brand. And I'm going to focus on repositioning myself. Mm-hmm. Um, what I found was that I was letting recruiters, I was letting hiring managers position me as a senior marketing manager. Or, or an overpaid senior marketing manager in some <laughs> yeah. cases. Um, that wasn't what I wanted them to see. Mm-hmm. And so I said, the only way for me to reposition myself is for me to kind of find forums where I could put my message out into the world. So I started speaking. I started writing. Um, I identified um, a list of things that I think companies want in executive marketers, Mm -hmm. um, a list of kind of five key things. And I started just kind of going out to conferences and writing blogs about those things and showing what what I could do and what I could bring to companies. And as I started speaking more and writing more, um, I started getting invited to speak at new conferences. Mm-hmm. And then I got invited to write for major uh, marketing publications. And before I knew it, my phone started ringing. And recruiters were calling me. And they were presenting really interesting uh, job opportunities to me. So yeah. it, it's a good lesson that, you know, you can't wait around for people mm-hmm. to, you know, just give you job offers or to do things for you. You have to own your career. Yeah. Uh, you have to build your own personal brand. And that'll set you up for success in the long term. Yeah, that's great great advice. Great advice. Absolutely. Um, So how do you translate that into your current role with Park Mobile? Right. So at Park Mobile, I think, you know, having a strong personal brand helps build the brand of the company, right? Mm -hmm. Um, When you hire a CMO or a CEO and people know that person, that's a good thing. You True. say, oh, wow, they got that guy to work at their company. That, that's pretty cool. So it creates this kind of win-win. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I also, you know, I, I continue to, you know, use my personal brand to advocate for the company as well. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look on my Twitter, you looked on my LinkedIn, a lot of the content I'm pushing out there is about Park Mobile. Right. Um, and I have a fair amount of Twitter followers. I have a fair amount of LinkedIn followers. So that just helps extend our brand message. Mm-hmm. Um, it helps, um, you know, gives our, our brand kind of a halo. It gets people, especially in our local market where we do a lot of our recruiting, mm-hmm. to know about the brand. So they're excited about Park Mobile. They want to work for Park Mobile. Um, so it's really, uh, I think, uh, you know, important thing that as a, a CMO of a company, a lot of ways you you are um, tasked with being the the chief uh, cheerleader, for lack of a better term, for that company, right? By having a strong personal brand and having a lot of people that you're connected to, I'm able to effectively cheerlead. I'm Mm -hmm. able to kind of push out news information about what we're doing, and a lot of people are seeing that news. And it really helps build the Park Mobile brand and helps make us a company that um, people are interested in, making us a company that people want to work for. Yeah. Absolutely. So... Tell us a little bit about what advice you would give to other product marketers out there. You know, there's a lot of common mistakes that are being made, but it's also a highly competitive market. Uh, it's always you know tough to stand out. So, what what advice would you give to your peers? I think uh, for product marketers, a key is really talking to your users or talking to your customers. You know, understanding on a very um, detailed level what's working for them in your product or solution and what's not. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of companies today, especially technology companies, seem to, there's a lot of uh, ready-shoot aim uh, where they're Absolutely. building new products, building new features. Everyone's agile. Everyone's kind of working at like super, yep. super high velocity. Yep. Um, but people aren't taking enough time to actually look at the work after it goes out into the world to understand, right. is, was that the right thing to do? Mm-hmm. Did we yeah. just screw up the app? Did we just make a big mistake? Right. So I think just having um, 
you know, product marketing, because that's that's really I think the key role of a product marketer is you you stand between the the developers and the technologists and the user, right, and right. the and the customer, and you have to kind of bridge those gaps. Like you right. have to. Uh, understand what dev is building, and yep. you have to understand what consumers want, right. and and kind of find that middle ground there. So you're, you know, you can really meet the needs of the consumer while dev could build something that's really cool and that works for for the company. Um, so that's the big thing. It's a tricky job. It's a tough job. Yeah. Uh, but I think um, the great product marketers out there really hone in on what customers need. Studying the customer, studying usage behavior, doing focus groups, doing user testing, um, and and if you're doing that and you're doing it the right way, uh, the product's going to be very successful. Absolutely. Yeah. So, what things are in the future for Park Mobile? Is there anything you can tease us about currently? Anything you're excited about coming up? Yeah. In the short term, uh, one thing I'm super excited about is that we're we're going to have event parking in the app. Oh, that oh. would be great. So now you have a now you could book parking two ways in the app. You could pay for on-street parking at the meter, right? Mm-hmm. And we call that zone parking. So you go and you enter a zone number. You could book parking ahead of time at a garage in your area, so a gated garage. So that's a parking reservation. And now we're going to have event parking in the app as well. So you could go and you could say, "All right, I'm going to uh, the Taylor Swift con concert tonight. It's at Mercedes-Benz Arena in Atlanta. Um, I'm going to go into the app. I'm going to select the Taylor Swift con- uh, concert. And you basically just, you get your mobile pass, you go right in. So yeah. really making uh, concert or sporting event parking a lot easier for people yeah. and keeping it all within the app. You know, mm-hmm. there's so many ways to buy, you know, tickets and parking out there today. Sure. But having one app that really lets you do the on-street parking, the garage parking, the event parking, yep. um, all in one place where you have your license plate set up, you have your credit card set up. Um, we think that's really going to make it easy for consumers. So that's in the short term. We're really excited about that. Um, in the longer term, uh, we earlier this year we were acquired by BMW, mm-hmm. um, so they became our sole shareholder. Right. And just last month, it was in that now we're being rolled into a joint venture between BMW and Daimler. Mm. Uh, so, so that's really interesting. So it's a joint venture that's really focused on mobility technology. Okay. And it's got a couple different parts of the portfolio. Uh, one is parking, obviously, with us. Ride sharing, ride hailing, um, uh, electronic vehicle charging. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have all these different entities that are all coming together in this joint venture between Daimler and BMW. So it's um, it's still uh, being reviewed by the European Union right now. So we probably a couple months out before that becomes a becomes formalized. But that's really exciting to have all of these companies in one kind of holding company. That and all we're focused on is is the future of mobility. Um, I, I think I think that's really exciting. Now I don't know what's going to come of that from a, a product perspective yet. It's still mm-hmm. very early on, but um, you know if you think about uh, the transportation of the future and mobility in the future, you know we're all companies that are really trying to reduce friction in the process and make the lives easier for consumers. And so that's that's I think really exciting about the future of our company. Absolutely, as a heavy user of your product, I am very excited about some of these things coming up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, thanks so much for joining us. We had a, a great time asking you questions and hearing your perspective. Yeah, right, guys, thanks thanks for having me. Absolutely, thank you. Corey Banyan is the CEO and founder of AndMe.tv, a virtual meet and greet platform that helps artists create fan experiences unlike any other. 
Using interactive video technology, fans can, quote, get in line, join the virtual stage, and meet their favorite artists face-to-face. I'm Corey, I'm the CEO and founder of And Me TV, and we are a fan engagement platform that allows celebrities and influencers to host virtual experiences with their fans. So Corey, AndMe.TV seems like an exciting platform. So what's your story? How did tell me more? How did you get here? Yeah, so I was a disappointed fan at a meet and greet experience, and I was being pushed along a conveyor belt with all the fans at a VIP meet and greet. I just paid a hundred bucks to meet one of my favorite stars, and I remember leaving so disappointed because I did not get that authentic experience interaction with them that I was waiting for and I was so excited for, and. I started thinking, this experience is broken from both sides because that has to be so awkward, uncomfortable to be in a room full of fans. It's exhausting because they're doing them in between shows. I thought technology and having a virtual space to engage with your fans could really make this experience better. Who was the uh, celebrity or star that you attended? Uh, I'm not mentioning names. All right. That's <laughs> fair. Let's say this. Are you going to go back to them and say, like, come on to your platform now? Have you done that yet? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, let me tell you what happened after that experience. Okay. <laughs> and why this relates to why I'm so passionate about this. Because when you're growing your career as an artist, or if you're growing your audience as an influencer, you want to create this special bond and relationship with your fans. And the moment that I had that bad experience, I was disappointed at the show even. I was bummed, you know, I'm not buying that music anymore. I'm not buying the merch and going to more shows and telling my friends about, you know, that artist. And, you know, he may have been having a bad day. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'll get to talk to him one day. (laughs) Um, But that's what's so special about the way that I'm approaching the virtual meet and greet on our platform because this online interaction allows the artist or the celebrity to be themselves. And it's comfortable, um, it's authentic, it's the creating these moments that the fans just love and they share with their friends. And I actually have a really awesome story about the very first event we did. We launched with country music duo Walker McGuire. Right. And uh, the, one of the fans that ended up FaceTiming with them over our platform, she messaged our page after the event and she said, oh my gosh, Walker McGuire knows me now because of you. Like, thank you. And I I asked her to explain and she goes, she was at one of their concerts and they remembered her face and her name, pointed her out in the crowd. And now she's not just a fan. She is a super fan. So super fans are made on Anvi TV and I just just love it. That's a great story. (laughs) Thank you. That's a great story. So do you see from the artist side as well, like it's, you mentioned at the start, it's like, you know, they walk into a room of strangers mm-hmm. and not all artists are exactly people friendly and they, they, are, they, are, they are experts of their craft not exactly experts of talking to people does this right. help? exactly you know there are some celebrities that love to engage with right. their fans in all forms um, and then there are some that just like to focus on their craft and they're really uncomfortable in those environments I've had conversations with 
some of the top people at the music labels in Nashville because right. I'm in um, an accelerator program in Nashville too called Project Music. And they spoke to me about their pain point they're currently having. They're having meetings about artists having severe anxiety at these meet and greet experiences right. and they're trying to figure out what to do. So I just feel like the timing right now is so great. Um, and I'm hoping that we can help those artists that are more introverted but they still want to give their fans a special experience. Great. So, so um, we, the platform comes out pretty soon and this is a public release? Like everyone gets access to it? Uh, we're in beta, so beta. not public yet, cool. um, but we do have a wait list on our website right now. You can go there. It's www.andme.tv, and that's spelled out A-N-D-M-E. And um, you can sign up there um, as fans or as artists or any type of celebrity or influencer. Um, and then the fans who sign up on the website will have first access. They're like our VIPs. So they'll know, you know who's coming out first on the platform that they can meet. Um, and then we're starting to sign up and onboard artists right now. Uh, we'll be launching the beta here in the next week or two. Great, brilliant. Awesome. Yeah. And how is this a different experience than just interacting with the artist on social media? Yeah, so on social media, on Facebook Live, for example, an artist can take fans behind the scenes and broadcast something from you know, the studio or the comfort of the living room, but it's very passive. You know, the fans are just watching, and on our platform, they're actually interacting. They're having a real-time moment that feels like you're FaceTiming that person. Mm -hmm. In a way, it kind of feels like they're hiding behind social media a little bit. I don't think it truly shows their personality like the way it does on our platform and that interaction. Another thing with social media, too, is it's really, really hard to streamline that whole experience because they've got to answer comments, they've got to answer DMs, they're going live, they're looking at all this data, and we're putting all of this process of engaging with your fans into one place, simple access. Cleveland Brown is the founder and CEO of PayScout, a global payment processing provider covering six continents by connecting merchants and consumers via credit, debit, ATM, and alternative payment networks. He stopped by after his talk at DigiSouth to give us a little bit more insight into the future of PayScout and alternative payment methods. Well, we're here at DigiSouth with Cleveland Brown. Welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do and who you are? Sure. I am the CEO and co-founder of PayScout. Okay. PayScout's a payment ingenuity company. Mm -hmm. uh, we service over 3,000 merchants globally uh, for payments, and we do that uh, through five layers of innovation. Uh, if you'd like me to share those with you, I could. Absolutely. Uh, okay, yeah. so our five layers of innovation makes us very unique. How we qualify ourselves as a, pay as a payment ingenuity company is one through a layer of culture. Okay. So we've developed um, an award-winning culture. Mm -hmm. uh, actually ranked number one in the United States for financial services in terms of one of the best places to work in the world. Uh, the second is through global payment acceptance. So we increase uh, customer base of our merchants through global acceptance. The third is disruptive technologies. Um, and that's where uh, virtual reality comes into play. Okay. Where we're one of the first uh, companies in the world uh, to introduce VR commerce, frictionless payments, and virtual reality experience. And the fourth layer, really, the last two separate us from the majority of our companies. The fourth layer is security. Okay. Uh, and we have a, a, a not an if, but a when security uh, environment when it comes to innovation. 
Um, and then the final is, is RegTech, so it's regulatory technology. So myself personally, I spend a lot of time in D.C. with uh, regulators, not just here in the U.S., but globally in terms of implementing technology uh, to be able to uh, make sure that the regulatory environment is uh, compliant for our customers. Makes a lot of sense. And you brought up VR technology. You gave a presentation on that a little bit earlier today. Can you tell us a little bit about what you touched on? Sure. So, uh, a couple of areas, but the main point, the main point uh, for VR uh, in terms of virtual reality, is to help people understand uh, if it's relevant to them. Do they need a VR commerce strategy? So it was really to uh, educate okay. uh, and give context to how to determine, um, do you need one? Is virtual reality going to uh, impact your, your business? And that was uh, what the discussion was about. That makes a lot of sense because I feel like a lot of people will see this flashy new technology and immediately be like, I need that for my business. And it's not necessarily lucrative or will add something relevant to their company. That, that's correct. Yes. Yeah. And, and you also have the flip side of that where uh, you'll see a new technology and think that it's cost prohibitive mm, yes. as well. So uh, really making sure that we debunk the myths um, about VR and uh, hopefully uh, it resonated with the audience. Absolutely. One of the things I heard was how um, the, was it Charity for Water? Charity Water, yes. Charity Water, um, how VR helped with that. Can you sure. explain that a little bit? So when we talk about VR, um, I like to really break the experience uh, up into two areas, agency and empathy. So. With nonprofits, so Charity Water is a nonprofit that provides safe and clean water uh, for impoverished countries and communities. And they had held an event uh, in New York, and it was a donor event, and they decided to really bring the empathy uh, forward using a virtual reality experience. Mm -hmm. And one of the donors there, after going through this experience and seeing the impact uh, clean water has on these communities had originally pledged, I believe it was uh, $60,000. That wow. was their original pledge okay. before the VR experience. Mm -hmm. After the VR experience, they pledged $400,000. Wow. And uh, that was, as I said, uh, it was due to the empathy mm -hmm. um, and the agency. And we're talking about agency, meaning that they had their own unique experience from their own point of view. Uh, when they're in virtual reality. And it really resonated with them and increased their, their donation by over six times. Wow. And that plays into a theme that we've been seeing in a lot of talks where the storytelling aspect with your customers is very important to truly get them to understand what you're doing and why it will impact them. And it clearly changes people's minds. Yes. Yeah, so from a storytelling perspective, it's interesting that you say that. So part of my discussion, that's where it starts. Mm -hmm. And the story that you can tell in yes. virtual reality is unlike traditional media. And in, in my spare time, my hobby is making movies. Oh, very nice. So uh, I've made 20-some-odd short films and most recently a feature film. And when, I, when you look at traditional media, you are limited to a frame. 
Yes. Yeah. Right. So that frame is whether it's the movie screen, your phone, your PC, your tablet, whatever it may be. And you have to, as a storyteller, put everything in that frame and try to tell your story. With, there's no agency there, right? Mm-hmm. There's just empathy. You just want to try to get them to feel. Yeah. And in virtual reality, we found as storytellers that immersive experience of being able to take that frame and put you in the story and in that frame, whether that's third person or first person, the agency now of your own point of view and perspective really ties in to the empathy and, and it tells a story unlike anything else. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's fascinating. Now, tell us a little bit about VR Commerce. Okay, so VR Commerce. So June 2017, uh, we were, we are, uh, or were the first company in the world to execute, execute a frictionless payment without taking the headset off for a physical good. Wow. During a virtual reality experience and having that good shipped to your home. So that was in June of 2017. We, we uh, launched that actually in Copenhagen. Wow, in, in congratulations. Europe. And I'll start with where I believe VR commerce sits. Okay. Right? Um, and I like to do, and I talked about it in my presentation, is talk about the dawn of e-commerce. When we, if we go back to that period of time, there were a lot of, there's a lot of cynicism about e-commerce mm-hmm. and its capabilities right. and security. Do I want to put my card number in there? Who would buy a car uh, online? Who would buy shoes? I can't touch them. I can't feel them. And they just weren't innovative in terms of thinking about how this medium uh, can enhance the customer experience because that, that's what it's all about. So when I look at VR commerce, it's exciting yeah. because this is a new shift. And what e-commerce did to retail, VR commerce will do to e-commerce. Okay. That's a bold claim, but I like it. Yeah, I have one of your quotes. A third of online consumers will use VR by 2020. That's that's what's being predicted by research. Researchers, analysts. Analysts. uh, Seven point, I think it was one seven billion dollars in revenue this year, which will launch up to 70 some odd 70 point something, 70.3, I believe, billion dollars by 2020. Wow. So can you walk us through the experience of putting on the VR headset and making a purchase? Sure. Do you Are you transported into a store? What is it like? Really depends on the strategy. Okay. okay so, but I'll walk you through the very, from beginning, and I'll walk you through two different examples. And before you jump into that, you just said something about the strategy. So as you talk to companies, like, I'm sure you go, you know, what is their VR strategy mm-hmm. before they can de- decide what kind of store yeah. or, you know, what that visual is going to be. So, yes, yeah, the, and the strategy is important. You know, and there's, and like I said, once again, that was the core of the presentation. How do, how do I decide, yes, I need a strategy? Yes. Yes, I need a strategy. not everybody does. Yeah. yeah, it's getting there. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I'll walk you through the experience. Yeah. So you have your mobile device. Okay. Mm-hmm. You're going to download an app. Mm-hmm. And that app is going to contain your experience. Okay? okay. And I'll talk about the experiences. After you download the app, you're going to input credentials. Okay? Mm-hmm. So you're going to put your credentials in. And for the activations that we've done, we've used Visa Checkout. Uh, Visa is one of our partners uh, as we uh, continue to launch activations uh, for retailers. And after you do that, you're going to be prompted to 
put that put your phone into your device, whether that's a six dollar cardboard or a Samsung device, depending on how sophisticated your device is. You're going to put that into the device. You're going to then start viewing. Now, there's two. We've seen two strategies up to this point. So okay. strategy, well, really three strategies. So strategy one is uh, a branding strategy. So lifestyle strategy. So all I want is I want people to connect to my brand. Yeah. Right. And through lifestyle. So it's usually a lifestyle piece. So one of the pieces we did was for a company called Body Language Sportswear, which is a, a, a sports e-tailer for, for women in Los Angeles. And they did that. So you were immediately, as soon as you put the headset on, you're transported into body language's world. Wow. Okay. Okay. And in this particular instance, you're following a, a model and her day, a life, in, in a day in her life while she's wearing these clothes. And after that experience, so you could stop there. You can just simply say, okay, here's the experience. What we did here is we then transported them into a virtual store. Oh. So they went from this lifestyle experience, really experiencing this brand, and all of the product that they came into contact with during that virtual reality experience, they were able to purchase it in a virtual store and interact with it in virtual reality. So they were actually transported into a 360-degree store of which you know they saw models and product, and they were able to interact with it in virtual reality and then purchase. That's cool. That's a cool experience. Yeah. yeah, it was very cool. Do you have any exciting ventures coming up? Any new films we should watch out for from your... We, we do have exciting activations. I can't, unfortunately, can't release, <laughs> release the, uh, uh, the, what we're doing. Mm-hmm. But what I can tell you is the excitement comes from a few areas. One is professional sports. Okay. Okay. So we're seeing activations um, mm-hmm. in that realm. Uh, number two is we're seeing it in the e-tail space, in the retail space. Mm-hmm. Some really cool stuff happening. Number three, which I'm excited about, it's the nonprofit space. Mm-hmm. So once again, that's why I brought up Charity Water. And uh, we did an activation. That actually, the first donation in the world we did for Jefferson Awards Foundation for a donation in virtual reality. But we're seeing more and more activations tied to the empathy of, you know, the social responsibility to make the world a better place. And that's that resonates with me because that's our belief at mm-hmm. PayScout. And we're seeing a lot of that. The most recent one we did was with Visa and the United States Olympic Committee. Uh, really? Yes. And uh, you were able to experience skateboarding. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's being introduced to the 2020 Tokyo Games. So, I did hear about this, yeah. yeah. So you can actually go in and experience what this Olympic hopeful is going through. And, oh, neat. And even being on a skateboard. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty amazing. And after you're done with that experience, you're actually transported into a donation to that Olympic hopeful. Wow. So those are some of the, the exciting things that we have done, and there's a lot of excitement on the horizon. Very nice. That's very, very exciting. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. You have another and question? where can people find you online if they want to know more? Real easy. Pay Scout. Dot com. Awesome. And yourself, are you on Twitter? Anything I, like I am that? on Twitter and LinkedIn, so you can find me on Twitter and LinkedIn and uh, would love to have a conversation. So. Absolutely. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Dr. Brian Sullivan is a clinical psychologist and the founder and chief science officer of Morphe. Morphe is a technology platform that focuses on providing better tools for expressing emotion and thus better data and actionable insights for brands to leverage. 
Dr. Sullivan stopped by to tell us more about his product and its potential impacts. All right, so we're here at Dig South with Brian Sullivan of Morphe. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, actually, I'm a clinical psychologist and I've okay. been practicing about 25 years. Several years ago, I had the insight that uh, my efforts to collect good data from my patients in my, uh, in my attempts to monitor their progress and their outcomes in psychological treatments, my efforts were being thwarted. And it's not because they were malicious. It was because they were bored. I was giving them questionnaires to try to assess their mood and their emotional state and other subjective experiences that matter a lot in clinical practice. But I was using traditional question and answer format and especially uh, Likert scales. So a question would say, how depressed are you today? And the option for them to respond would be a line with several little hash marks uh, labeled zero, one, two, three, four, not at all, a lot. And I noticed they were just flying through these questionnaires and filling out all zeros or all threes or all fives. Or uh, instead of taking uh, one minute to fill out a five-minute questionnaire and giving me no useful data, they were taking 20 minutes and marking an answer and then erasing it, marking it, erasing it, writing in the margin why a three wasn't quite right and a two wasn't quite right. And I said, you know, guys, really, one of my patients just looked at me one day and he said, Doc, I don't feel in five-point gradations. How am I supposed to fill this out? I said, I know. I, I, I'm sorry, but just do your best. I thought there's got to be a better way. These folks were not giving me good quality data. They were generating more noise than useful data. And so I thought there's got to be a better way. Wouldn't it be nice if I could just hand them an iPad or something like that with facial expressions that uh, represent depression, anxiety, irritability, fatigue, pain, and let them just adjust the intensity of the facial expression. Hmm, that's too much. No, that's not enough. That, 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 that's just right. That's how I feel. Because we're hardwired to read and use facial expressions to convey our inner experiences to other people. And we can actually turn that into a mirror that they can adjust, sort of like a funhouse mirror, until it accurately reflects how they feel. It's like the Goldilocks moment. That's too much, that's too little, that's just right. And I started talking about this with folks and everybody was like, oh my God, that would be so much better. Wow, yeah, that would actually be fun. I would enjoy that. Yeah. And so unfortunately it didn't exist. And so I had to invent it. Uh, which went what swimmingly well. Oh, yeah. Well, it went swimmingly well, except that I don't know how to draw. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I could describe this to folks, and I could sketch it on paper, and everybody said, yeah, that would be cool. And this was at a time when emoticons were fairly present mm -hmm. in our, our everyday language. Emoji were just beginning to come onto the scene and become widely adopted. So there was this growing wave towards these little pictographs to way to, to especially to add context to to written text and so there was this sort of groundswell of support for yeah that would be better and not only would it be fun but it would be more independent of language barriers and it would be more useful across the age span a four-year-old can't very well relate to a likert scale to try to tell you how they feel yeah. but hand a four-year-old my morphes Zero learning curve. They get it immediately. They can tell us how they feel. They can tell us how their how their dog feels. They can tell us how their toy might be feeling. How do um, they access? How do they access the Morphe? So Morphe uh, is actually a toolkit 
We're sort of like the Intel chip inside your computer. We build a toolkit full of these emotional expressions, and they are distinct expressions. They've been validated so that they're not easily confused with one another. So if it's labeled as anger, it looks like anger, and we've got verification. And you bake these tools into your third-party applications. Some people are building entire mobile applications around our Morphe toolkit, like to assess pain or other clinical status. Like a lot in the healthcare. A so lot of healthcare. So what other industries are you finding it? We're having folks use these to test creative content, like uh, television ads uh, and propositions for those things. We have folks using these in the banking industry to assess customer responses to potential changes in online banking experiences. Mm. We have people using these uh, to help um, gauge customer uh, experience, customer journey patient journey in the hospital as a form of customers, of course, and also uh, employee engagement. We have folks using Morphe's, for example, uh, some of our partners are using this in an application designed to help diminish nursing turnover. There's a big problem in the nursing industry, and they're aiming at solving that problem by helping nurses communicate their experiences, stress levels, needs more effectively so that we can reduce their burnout. So where can people find more about Morphe? M-O-R-P-H-I-I dot com. Morphe dot com. Perfect. And where can people follow you online to see more? I have a LinkedIn profile. Uh, they can follow uh, Morphe on Twitter. They okay. can follow Morphe and LinkedIn, uh, various other social media. Um, if they start with Morphe dot com, they'll see the buttons that they can click from there. Perfect. Wonderful. Love Thank it. you so much, Brian. Thank you Thank so you much. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Nice to talk with you guys. Absolutely. Eli Calderon Moran is the founder of All EBT, which is a smart wallet for food stamp users that allows those on food stamps to participate in the digital economy. Eli participated in the startup pitch competition at Dig South on the second day of the conference. All right, so we're here at Dig South, and we're we here. Are. With, yeah, we are, and we have Eli here, and you are working with All EBT. That's correct, All EBT. Can you tell us a little bit about your company? Wonderful. So All EBT is a smart wallet for food stamps. So in America, there's a lot of people on food stamps. Yes. There's 22% of the population is on food stamps. 22%. 22%. Wow. 54 million Americans. They wow. spend about $126 billion every year. Mm -hmm. But they can't spend any of that money online. So they can't shop online. They can't use all these new apps that are out there. They're stuck with old technology, old food stamp technology. And uh, we basically are here to modernize payments for food stamps. Very nice. So it's a digital wallet where you can upload the food stamps onto it? That's right. So it's a digital wallet. We call it a smart wallet. In essence, it's just another another way to say digital wallet. Mm -hmm. So basically, the way food stamps works, you get an EBT card. Mm -hmm. It's called electronic benefits card. And that card kind of looks like a debit card, but it doesn't function like a debit card or like a credit card. You can only use it at certain places, at certain merchants, and only at a specific terminal, like a really? point-of-sale device. Yeah. Oh. So what we've done is we've taken... Um, all that old technology, you basically load the funds from that EBT card into the digital wallet. And then from, once it's on the wallet, you basically have the ability to start making purchases online. That's really cool. So how did you come up with this concept? I had been working in the Silicon Valley for 
Over 10 years, I had worked at you know, startups that got acquired by Google, by Amazon, working on really like advanced, like whether it was like AI or artificial intelligence or speech recognition. And I, I kept on coming back to LA. I grew up in LA, grew up in a real low-income community here. Mm-hmm. And I said, why isn't technology doing something for my community, for my people, for the people that need it the most? And the more that I kept on looking into food stamps, I, w- I realized, like, this is a real problem. There's, like, lots and lots of people on food stamps, and they can't use all of these cool things that I'm able to use, having worked in the Silicon Valley, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, I can order something to drink, I can order fresh food, I can order vegetables, I can do all these things. But if I'm on food stamps, all of that economy, digital economy, is blocked off for me. That makes, yeah, and I didn't even think about how you can't even, now that groceries are now being delivered exactly. a lot more, you don't even save that time because you're forced to go to the store and pay with the physical Yeah, card. So, so what if you're like disabled and you don't have yeah. transportation, you can't get to the supermarket? What if you're, you know, you just have a newborn baby and it's hard to get out and lug a bunch of groceries home? What if... You live in an area that doesn't have like a Whole Foods like next door. A food desert, yeah. Yeah, like what if you live in a food desert and all you have is cheap like liquor stores and junk food? You know, the internet gives us the ability to like order stuff like from Amazon Fresh, from Instacart, and basically gives us access to things that we didn't have. Absolutely. And so this kind of opens up the world to them, the digital world. totally opens it up. Right now, like I said, they, us, people on food stamps. Mm -hmm. So one of the things uh, really interesting for our company is everybody that joins the company has to go apply for food stamps. Really? Really. No way. So you're on food stamps. Engineers, product. uh, We don't qualify anymore, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) we have to go through the process of signing up and going through the whole Department of Social Services and seeing what it feels like, you know, to get on food stamps. That's a really cool policy to have because then you can truly understand what it's like. That's the first assignment for engineers, for everybody at the company. Wow. And then that plays into this idea of you really have to, something that I've been hearing all day today is that you have to truly understand your customer to be able to build a product that actually serves them instead of building the product you think they might want. So that that policy that you have lets you fully understand the customer because totally. you become the customer for totally. a little bit. Some people get really uncomfortable. And, I bet. And they, they've never been on food stamps or they've never applied for some type of social services. And they just don't make it through the interview process. And they wow. <laughs> kind of like peace. Yeah, yeah, I bet. <laughs> and then that also kind of destigmatizes it because it brings everybody onto the same playing field. So you're not the person who has to go to that specific terminal with the specific debit card. You can be the person paying with your phone again. Yeah, so there's a lot of problems with food stamps, Mm -hmm. whether it's political or health or bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. We're we're basically just trying to focus on the consumer, on communities of low income, and figuring out how do we give them technology that'll help them eat healthier, save money, 
have access to better choices in terms of food. So, yeah, that's our mission. That's a noble cause, yeah. And so you all have funding. You've gotten your first round of funding. That's right, yeah. So we closed a, we closed a small seed round from Queen City Fintech. Congrats. Thank you. It's very exciting. Yeah. And you'll be participating in the startup panel tomorrow? That's right. So we're one of the finalists for two different pitch competitions here. And we're just looking to to really get out the news about about this this problem and 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 get people rallied behind us from the tech community to solve problems that really you know have impact in in America. Absolutely. So where can people find more information online? Our website is www.allebt.com. That's a l l e b t.com. Oh, we're also we're we're running a crowdfunding campaign okay. on Republic, so you can join that cam- campaign and help us out. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. Thank you for having us here. We're excited. Of course, okay, yeah. Goodbye. And with that, our marathon episodes from the Flora Ditch South are complete. Thanks very much for listening, and many thanks to all the guests who took time out of their schedules to talk with us. As I mentioned in the introduction to the previous episode, Three Pillar and the Innovation Engines Roadshow is just getting revved up. The next stop on our Southern Swing will be New Orleans for the Collision Conference, where I'll be speaking with the likes of Anaid Shakan, a product manager for Dropbox, Jonathan Work, the founder and CEO of Co-Parenter, and many more. So if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to tune in for the next one. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Innovation Engine Podcast is brought to you by Three Pillar Global a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. Head to www.3pillarglobal.com to learn more about our services. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, and Spotify, and we post extensive show notes for each episode on the 3 Pillar website at 3pillarglobal.com slash podcast. That's three with the number three. Don't forget, we also have an iOS app for the Innovation Engine. Search for the Innovation Engine on the App Store from your iOS devices. Last but not least, we're always striving to improve here on the Innovation Engine podcast, and we get asked often, who listens to it? We can see from our analytics that a pretty healthy number of you do listen, but raw download numbers don't do much to help us learn who out there is listening, what your day-to-day jobs are like, and what kinds of topics or which specific guests you might like to hear from. So if you'd like to help make the Innovation Engine a little bit better, please take a few short minutes out of your day and shoot me a quick email with some of that information. Will.Sherlin at 3PillarGlobal.com is my email address. Also, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and message me there. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll see you next time.